from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, it's true. I'm a total insomniac. I can't fall asleep. I can't stay asleep. I can't go back to sleep. And that is in my own bed. When I'm in a plane, forget about it. I don't even try. But it's not like I do anything productive when I'm not sleeping. I just lie there and let my head spin around. So when I sat down on the plane back in May of 2019 to fly to London on my book tour... I was not expecting to sleep on the way. By the way, I know it sounds cool when I say book tour, and it was quite a tour. I was treated like the celebrity you have come to know and love. I got to go to England, UK, Great Britain, and London. I even got to visit one of the British Isles, and not just any British Isle, the biggest one. Only the really big writers get that kind of treatment. I'd like to tell you I sat in first class. But if first class is the middle seat in the middle row with a partially broken food tray, then I was living the high life. My initial plan was to watch movies the whole way. First up was Bohemian Rhapsody, which seemed appropriate for a flight to London. But before I started, I decided to do a little reading. I was booked on Start of the Week with Andrew Marr, which I was pretty excited about. There were three other guests. Two of them had new books coming out, and I was sent PDF copies of them. I figured I would flip through them for a couple of minutes before I let Freddie Mercury start belting out his songs. The first was Superior, The Return of Race Science by Angela Saini. Angela is a British science journalist and the author of three books, including the best-selling book Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong. She presents radio and television shows on the BBC, and her documentary series about the history and science of eugenics aired on BBC Four shortly after my trip there. But I didn't know anything about her at the time, and although I had done some research on the popularity of eugenics in the U.S. before World War II, I was under the impression most of that kind of stuff had died out once Hitler displayed the end result of trying to develop a master race. I clicked open the file as we flew out over Lake Michigan and started reading, and I kept reading. And I kept reading. I couldn't put it down. I was absolutely enthralled. I do remember at one point looking up and every person on the plane had their lights off and was trying to sleep except me. I read the whole thing crossing the pond and reread part of it in my hotel the next day as I was fighting jet lag. The book is absolutely beautiful. It is so compelling, so well constructed, so persuasive truly a pleasure to read. I immediately agreed with almost all of it. Of course, I have known for a while that race is a social construct. I've also known that African Americans have suffered for so long in American society, from the times of slavery to Jim Crow to redlining to inherent prejudices and systemic racism that continue today. Everyone in healthcare knows that African Americans do worse in almost any category of health, which is generally thought to be related to racism, socioeconomic status, exposure to pollution, you name it. And yet, as I read the chapter on race and medicine, I felt uncomfortable. I mean, most of us in healthcare, the vast majority, approach every patient with a desire to make him or her healthy. But when people make the comment on rounds that African-American patients have more hypertension, more renal failure, or more rejection after organ transplantation, do we then go on to discuss why that might be? Do we explicitly discuss the specific socioeconomic factors that play a role in that and how we might intervene? And do some practitioners or students assume that just possibly there could be some genetic predisposition towards a stronger immune system that we haven't yet discovered? I mean, have I even thought that? Ever since I returned stateside, I haven't been able to get the book out of my head. I am sure by far the vast majority of us went into this profession for the right reasons. But I also suspect that deep down, many practitioners haven't really thought through how and why we use race in thinking about disease 
and what the implications could be. In the last couple of years, there have been two or three books that have really changed the way I look at the world, or maybe how I look at myself. One was Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. And the second was Superior by Angela Saini. Everyone, and I mean everyone, should read both of these books. In fact, if you haven't read them, I want you to take off your headphones, unsubscribe to my podcast, and join back once you have read them and wrote a one-page review on each that you can email me. Okay, no, I'm joking. How about you stay on instead and we all try to get educated together? When I took over this podcast, I immediately knew I would try and get Angela Saini on it, and she was one of the first people I reached out to. For reasons that are beyond me, she somehow agreed. Hopefully she won't regret it. Okay, today we have Angela Saini. Angela, welcome to the set. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I can't tell you how happy I am to have you on the show. I've been wanting to do this for a really long time. And I'm hoping you don't regret this at the end. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I won't. I'm sure I won't. Okay, good. Well, let me start by asking you a little bit about your background. I'd like to ask people where they grew up and what what are the events in your life that led you to, to choose your career and then ultimately to write this book, Superior. Well, um, I was born in London and I've grown up here, London, England. And I always loved science when I was growing up. So I was, I was kind of that typical geeky kid, I think, that used to play with science kids when I was very young. Um, and I particularly loved maths. So I had a real passion for maths. It just seemed so perfect and beautiful to me, you know, another way of understanding the world. So it was no surprise that, when, uh, that I chose to study engineering at university. And I had every intention of becoming an engineer, actually. My dad had also also, had also been an engineer, um, except I got involved in student politics, as so many people do, I think, when they were at university. And because of that, um, I, I became one of the chairs of the anti-racism committee at Oxford, and I started writing for the student paper. And it's because I started that kind of writing, you know, really kind of trying to address social issues and politics of my life, that by the time I left university, I thought I would try and make it as a journalist, see if it worked out. And actually, it worked really well for me, I think, partly because I was a novelty for editors in having an engineering degree (laughs) rather than something else. So, I worked in broadcasting and news for a long time on investigations, just doing everyday reporting. And when I left that to write books full time, I tried to bring that same investigative, interrogative bent to my writing on science. Um, So I treat science these days as a journalist in the same way that a political reporter would treat politics or a crime reporter would treat crime. I really try and go underneath the subject and get behind why it is that scientists do what they do. And that, that really is the story behind Superior. Got that. I know uh, at the end of the book, you mentioned that this is the book you've always wanted to write. Why did it end up being your your third book? Have you been working on it for years? or I've been thinking about it for years. Like I said, one of the reasons that I got into writing in the first place is because I was involved in anti-racism activism when I was young. And it was the backdrop to my life in, in many ways. But I just didn't think there was an appetite for it. I just didn't think people, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s were that interested in another book on race and especially race science. There have been previous books on the topic, you know, like Richard Lewontin's book and others, and Samuel J. Gould, obviously. I just didn't think there was an appetite. But after I wrote Inferior, which um, did very well, I, I had a freedom to do what I wanted. So that's when I really got down to covering this topic. And it was very cathartic, I have to say. Gotcha. And uh, as much as I love the UK and uh, have some friends there, I don't know as much about life there as here in the US. Is racism uh, as prevalent and as embedded in society as, as we know it is in the US and we're seeing more and more? Well, it depends where you are, really. So I've lived in the US as well. I lived in Boston for a while. And I have to say, I found the US to be a very racialized society in that it felt as though everybody was thinking about it all the time. <laughs> you know, people would constantly point out my race to me or ask me about about it. And it, it kind of felt like the lens through which they were looking at everybody a lot of the time, even in context in which you would think that it wasn't necessary to think about people in that way. In the UK, I have to say, 
we have a different racial history, of course. We don't have the history of segregation, for example, that you have in the US. But there is also uh, an overlap between socioeconomic status and race in a similar way, I guess, as there is um, between black and white America. But in many ways, it is very different. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of racism where I lived in London. And um, I think it was worse for some people growing up in parts of the country that were very heavily white because they stood out. And I know, for instance, my husband suffered a lot of racist abuse growing up in South Wales, you know, physical abuse as well as mental abuse. It really depends on your circumstances. I have other friends who grew up in London the same time as I did in different parts who didn't really experience any racism at all. You know, they grew up in very multicultural areas. And so they just didn't see the same issues that I did. So I guess it depends on your on your background. Gotcha. And probably some similarity to that in the US, depending on where you grew up. But, uh, you know, this book really has gotten me thinking and changed the way I look at certain things. And I've suddenly noticed since I read it, how many times I'm asked my race and felt weird that out and wondering like, what race am I really? Uh, maybe a good place to start is um, you have a really poignant section in your book where uh, a sociologist or a researcher is watching other researchers who are collecting data on race and how it might affect um, some medication. And when she asks the investigators to define race, they, they had trouble. They really couldn't define it. I wanted to ask you how, how you define race. Um, I actually <laughs> looked it up in a dictionary after I read that because I, I realized like we might have certain suppositions about it that are not correct. Yeah, I think it's a difficult thing to pin down. It's something that we use routinely. It's an idea that we think about all the time. And yet, when we're forced to actually define it, it's it's very difficult. And the reason for that is when you look back at how these racial categories that we use now came about, and I'm talking about the very big, broad, color-based ones, black, brown, white, um, they certainly haven't been around forever. So that's not to say that people haven't recognized human difference. Of course they have. I'm, you know, I'm sure that ancient peoples as well noticed difference, but they didn't they didn't attach the same meaning or look at the differences in the same way that we do now. So a lot of the ways in which we, in the societies that I live in and in the US, we think about race is informed by these European Enlightenment categories of color, which were devised no more than a few hundred years ago, that are quite arbitrary, actually, when you think about it, dividing the human species by skin color. Why? Why would why, why would we pick that over anything else? There is no geographical boundaries around it. For example, you can be you can have dark skin and live in South India, West Africa, Australia. You know, you can be from so many different places and have black skin, and you can ha- be from so many different places and have white skin. You can be from Japan, from North India, from Egypt, Western Europe. There is no kind of clear boundaries that define what it means to have a certain skin color other than shade of skin. And even then, there is such a continuum when we talk about skin color. It's not as though people are very clearly black or very clearly brown. There's the, you know, there are different shades and different hues. So the, uh, it's the arbitrariness of it that we forget now because we use these as the, these categories as though they're so tangible and so real. But when you really sit down and think about it and where they come from and the history of it, they don't really make any sense at all. And this is the problem that the researcher you mentioned, Dwayna Fulwiley, had when she was asking this question is that here were researchers, scientists using race as a biological variable. And yet when they were asked to define it, they couldn't because Of course, there is no biological definition of race. It isn't a biological quantity. It's a social quantity. It exists only in as much as we define it, we kind of conjure it up in our heads. Right. I mean, it's so, this is so key to it all. It's so true that, of course, race is a social construct. We all know that. But like, when I think about what does it really mean, I think in my own mind, I just, you have this assumption that it's this real thing, right? And if you don't really dig deep in it, I was just when I read a definition at some site, uh, I thought it was interesting. They wrote grouping of humans based on shared physical or social qualities into categories gen- generally viewed as distinct by society. And it sounded like in the past, uh, people have defined it based on language, based on national affiliations. It, religion could be race by a definition or ethnicity. Is that correct? 
Well, it really is. It's the society itself that gives race any meaning, whatever meaning that it has. And these meanings differ depending on the place that you're in. So in the US, for example, um, blackness was historically defined by the one drop rule, the racist one drop rule, which basically said that if you have any kind of African ancestry or African heritage, even you know one great grandparent, and it can be discerned by looking at you, <laughs> then you are black. Um, whereas in other countries, that same person might be defined as mixed race. Or in South Africa, for instance, there is a category colored, which defines people who are mixed race or not not black or white. You know, there are so many different terms and so many different boundaries depending on where you happen to be. Um, and that is to be expected because these are these are politically, socially defined groups and different societies have different things that they care about when it comes to human difference. You know, they, they deliberately choose the boundaries that they do in order to reflect the political things that matter to them. Yeah, I mean, when you read about sort of the American history uh, in the 1700s, it's just mind-blowing how race gets defined. And I recently read Trevor Noah's book, born a crime and it it's almost laughable how he talks about <laughs> all the different things that played a role in his life you have a, a a beautiful quote i think in your um prologue that i really like you wrote race is at its heart the belief that we are born different deep inside our bodies perhaps even in character and intellect as well as an outward appearance you go on to talk more about that but then you have this line it's so tempting to feel this uh that sort of struck me like that's really true. It's ta it takes on a, a, a definition of its own that, that can feel right, even though it's so wrong. Yeah, and that's understandable, I think, because our identities are what we use to navigate the world and the, they define how the world treats us. So, of course, we're going to become attached to them. They're going to be part of our character. Um, in some ways, sometimes we live up to the stereotypes that are attached to these categories. They become self-fulfilling prop prophecies in a way. You certainly see that around gender, for instance. So one of the reasons that in the West, at least, we see so few women and girls pursuing careers in STEM subjects is partly to do with the stereotypes that we attach to the to STEM subjects in, in the West. So in a way, the choices that girls make and the lives that they choose for themselves are influenced by this. You know, they, it, it kind of sets the boundaries of what you think is possible for yourself. And race works in similar ways. You know, if, if there are racial stereotypes in a society, that not only does damage in the way that we see other people, but also how we see ourselves. It becomes kind of integral part to our of our identity, and once it is, then it's very easy to biologize that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't want to dig into the medicine part for a little bit, but going on what you said, it's such a it can become this self fulfilling uh, thing because, like for instance, you place African Americans in this race bucket or category, then they get less access to care, all the socioeconomic problems that have come with that. And then you start studying the biologic differences that led to worse disease, worse outcomes. So it's like this circular argument, like you said, for, for women, I mean, you have less options or expectations about what to go into. And then you say, see, they went into less, you know, to these different fields. Yeah. And it's kind of a tautology in a way. You know, first, first you tell people they can't do something or you physically prevent them or ban them from being able to do it. And then you tell them it's in their nature that they can't, yeah. do it. they can't do it in the first place. You know, it's, when you look at it that way, it's kind of mind-blowing. But if you don't dig into it, it seems plausible. So that's why I think this is so important. We've talked a little about race, like thinking about what is race science and how one defines that. I, I like what you wrote uh, that Jonathan Marks, uh, a professor of anthropology, uh, said about it. In the modern world, we look to science as a rationalization of political ideas Race science, he explains, emerged in the context of colonial political ideologies of oppression and exploitation. It was a need to classify people, make them as homogenous as possible. And then you have the line, uh, grouping people made it easier to control them. So it's kind of, essentially race science, is it trying to use science to give something biologic to groups that we've already made or, or do you? It's hard to say what came first, to be honest. Um, you know, did these ideas exist before scientists came along to reinforce them or did the creation of these categories by scientists 
make these groups exist. I really, I, I don't know if it's possible to answer that question because I do think the context in which these categories were created by Enlightenment naturalists was so skewed and warped in a way. You know, it was in a Europe in which slavery was a reality, colonialism was a reality, in which there were already ideas about Western civilizational superiority. There was already this sense of the other and that different cultures around the world had some kind of deep down fundamental differences about them, that there was a quality to them or a nature to them that was different to the to Western European natures. So I think they probably went hand in hand. You know, this, the, uh, scientists don't work in a vacuum. They are sitting in the world with the rest of us, living in the world with the rest of us. And they were part of that intellectual atmosphere. So I think probably it all happened all together. Like there can be different levels of race science, like now with how people study genetics, to my mind, that probably falls right, you know, as one of the most obvious examples of race science. But like, uh, uh, for instance, when we look at, okay, African-Americans do worse than white Americans in the U.S. and you do data analysis and one of your groups in your multivariable analysis is race, like, th is that race science that falls into race science? Well, I think it's it's the way that you're using these variables. I do think there's validity in using these categories as social categories. So if you're studying racism or discrimination or the effects of racism on the body or on the mind, then of course it makes sense to look at these variables uh, and how they act. But the danger comes in when that seeps into essentialism and you're using these social categories as though they are biological categories when you start looking for innate differences and you believe that those innate differences you know run along racial lines in some ways and that happens quite a lot and it happens i think among well-meaning researchers i think minority researchers happens among all kinds of people because this idea is so deep rooted you know it formed the bedrock of the science of human difference for hundreds of years we can't expect it to suddenly evaporate just because we've we we now understand how pseudoscientific it is that it it just hasn't happened that way and i think many scientists are still very attached to the notion that race is biological you know i mean b before we were doing this program you sent me some journal articles and in one of them it said that i mean i'm just recalling the quote now i read it a while ago but it was something like some medical researchers now believe that race is a social construct and just that statement itself <laughs> just goes to show that this isn't a widely accepted idea you know, this is an idea that still has to seep into the scientific uh, establishment completely. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot uh, more large or high impact articles now coming out discussing some of this, like how we use these calculators to look at kidney function or GFR and people suddenly, you know, we've had a correction for African-Americans because it's been thought for various reasons that at a given kidney function, they actually have better function than white. So there's been this correction where you calculate their clearance and it's somewhat arbitrary. It's probably inaccurate. And people are suddenly realizing by making this correction, African-Americans are less likely to be sent to specialists for kidney disease are actually less likely to get evaluated for transplant or get an organ. So like I People are starting to recognize recognize that more, but there's still a long way to go in people really understanding what so much is baked into, you know, how we treat patients. Yeah, it really does require a kind of shift in the way that you see race. Um, I would, I mean, one thing I've been calling for over the last year is that when researchers look at race, you know, when they see a racial variable, they treat it in the same way that they would treat socioeconomic status or class as a variable, that they don't automatically think, well, maybe there is genetics at play here, maybe there's something biological that they see, okay, right, this is a social variable, this is something that we need to understand uh, around things like income and nutrition or education level, and those are the things that are impacting you know, this is what explains the disparities that we see. But that's not what's happening at the moment. Um, but corrections are happening. Like you say, you know, people have looked at things like kidney function. There's also just at the end of last year, a paper was published showing that the UK's use of race as uh, in, in hypertension guidelines around how to treat hypertension should be changed 
Because at the moment, if you're under 55, the guidelines state that you should be given a different drug depending on your skin color. And what this paper said was that there is actually no, based on the evidence that we have, there's actually no real justification for that. And that the drugs, the major hypertension drugs should be prescribed equally. There is no reason to align them by race. Yeah, I mean, it's, I saw those articles as well. And um, it's just interesting, we might as well get into some of this medical stuff. It's interesting to think about how much is baked into our healthcare system and how, if you haven't read a lot about this, it would be totally normal to expect that there must be some biologic difference. I want to be careful here to say, but also being honest. So I think, um, like, I don't know, since I was a medical student, we knew that African-Americans have more hypertension, uh, more kidney disease, um, worse outcomes. And of course, we've known that's uh, uh, socioeconomic. But when, you know, people bring up African-Americans need to be treated with different medications, which is based on really faulty data, which we could easily get into, or, you know, their GFR needs to be calculated, their kidney clearance needs to be calculated differently because of some reasons that, you know, probably traditionally were based on thought about muscle mass or even like I'm a transplant surgeon and it's known that there's more rejection in that population and when people say on rounds you know this is an African-American patient we need to use higher levels of immunosuppression because rejection is higher I would bet most people know it's socioeconomic but in their mind also wonder huh maybe there's something different about the immune system so they have a stronger immune response you know or they must metabolize drugs differently and that's why they need different drugs right like unless you really really are thoughtful about it I would think most students probably think that yeah I would agree with you and in fact some of the most interesting responses I've had to superior have been from doctors from physicians including in my own family Uh, you know my mother-in-law I remember before she read superior she'd heard me doing an interview about this and she was just uh, she's a doctor herself a retired doctor herself and she was just up in arms she just said Angela of course race is important what are you talking about you have no idea what what you're saying it does make a difference we think about it all the time in diagnosis and treatment and uh it was only after she read superior that she said to me oh actually Maybe you're right. Maybe I do need to rethink this. And I've had that reaction from a lot of doctors, actually. You know, one interesting episode last year was during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I'm sure you remember, but in March, April, when we were seeing very high rates of death and critical illness among ethnic minority groups in certain areas. For example, in Chicago, I know that black Americans were dying at higher rates. And here in London, Asian doctors were dying at very high rates. You you know, in the news, many of the first people who were dying were Asian doctors. And there were attempts by some quite prominent medical researchers to biologize this. Uh, So they were giving statements to the press that perhaps there was a genetic reason that this was happening, that, that these groups were genetically more susceptible. Uh, you know, all non-white groups were genetically more susceptible somehow. And um, I was just flabbergasted because they had no evidence for that, number one. You know, it was really just speculation. And secondly, why did they not expect, when we have always seen racial disparities in health for a multitude of reasons, for that not to play out in the event of a pandemic? Of course it was going to. Not to mention demographic factors. So, for example... London, which was the first city hit here in the UK, is minority white British. And the proportion of people working in the NHS are disproportionately from ethnic minorities. And frontline workers are disproportionately from ethnic minorities in in London. So, of course, you were going to see different statistics. The statistics are obviously not going to reflect the way they would if the virus was evenly spread right throughout the UK. They are going to look different. And yet there was this kind of lazy speculation happening rampantly. It was so common to hear people making these kind of claims. And what that said to me was that there's this latent assumption about racial difference that must sit there in the medical community all the time. And as soon as it was given the opportunity, it, it emerged into the into the light. You know, every, they, this was the first place that they went when they saw the statistics that they did. 
Um, I wrote a piece about it for The Lancet towards the summer, uh, complaining about this and just urging people to be careful when they thought about race and COVID. And The Lancet doesn't usually peer review its essays, right? Because they're just essays, you know, points of view from, from outsiders. And yet my essay was peer reviewed twice because The Lancet editors were just so reluctant to accept what I was writing. I wasn't writing anything that wasn't, complete, you know, all I was writing was race as a social construct. I wasn't writing anything dangerous or difficult that or that went beyond the literature. It was firmly within the medical literature. Um, it was peer-reviewed twice. So there was a lot of resistance to it. And then, do you know what changed everything was the George Floyd murder. Mm. The George Floyd murder happened and suddenly the entire debate and narrative around this subject shifted and suddenly, doctors were getting in touch to say, oh, there is racism in medicine. We do need to look more carefully at the social determinants of health. It's not right to think about race in this way. Maybe we need to look again <laughs> at what we're doing. And the Lancet invited me to sit on their COVID-19 commission after the murder, I have to say. You know, what that goes to show is it's not the science that changed. It's the politics that changed. And the politics changed scientific attitudes. This is so incredibly important. I'm so glad you brought this up. And I hope if listeners take anything, well, we'll see if we say something more interesting, but this part is so key. You know, I obviously COVID has been a disaster and it's, it's, it's led to even more separations and disparity in our country and probably most countries. And I agree with you. I can't tell you how many times I have heard from people I respect and from really good scientists and healthcare workers who have said, you know, African-Americans have, have done worse uh, with COVID. And of course, it's due to socioeconomic things and the, you know, the jobs uh, people have and access to healthcare. And then we'll see if something biologic comes out as well, right? <laughs> Multiple times. And I have to tell you, like, if I hadn't read your book and been thinking about this, I don't think that would have struck me as odd. I would have thought like, yeah, I mean, it's mostly those other things, but maybe the ACE2 receptors are are higher up in certain organs or, you know, like maybe there's a stronger immune response that's leading to this cytokine storm. Like, you know, we'll see, we'll see what it shows. Right. And I don't think that because they're inherently, I don't know what it is, but I, I think it's come out from people who really care, but it's just baked in there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's motivated by anything other than, People haven't thought about it deeply, very deeply. You know, it's just part of the background. You know, it, like I said, it's kind of baked into the bedrock of the science of human difference. So why would you think about it any other way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the key to all of this is that we need to be more explicit about what it is we're saying. And like from teaching students to, at every, you know, to any level, when you say something like that, like, what are you implying and to be, to be just more thoughtful about that, I think, right? I mean, yeah, I agree, and and I do. I mean, I, I think one of the very easy ways to do it is just to ask yourself any time that you're using race as a variable to define it as thoroughly as you can, to be very very clear about what you mean when you're using this category, and ask yourself why you're using it. It struck me that it you were talking about this earlier, and I had made a notation about it as well. If instead of African American or, or you know black man, what well, country? If you if you used in your multivariate or in your analysis poor people versus rich people or Medicaid versus or no insurance versus good insurance, those will also be surrogate markers that you'll find differences as well. Yeah, and and I have to say, often race is a proxy for things like that. You know, it's a proxy for socioeconomic state, depending on the condition that you're looking at. Is a proxy for diet or socioeconomic status or where you live. Um, you know. Uh, which toxins you're exposed to, all all these different things. Right. Now, can we talk a little, I, I have a feeling you're bored of talking about this, but I, I need to bring it up. Can we talk a little about David Reich? Is that okay? Yeah, of course. You, yeah. you write about him uh, in your book. And um, so just for any of my listeners uh, who don't know who he is, he's, I guess you'd call him a geneticist at Harvard. Um, I think it's fair to say he's likely brilliant and a super high level geneticist. You mentioned in your book that his lab is a powerhouse, which is certainly true. I run a small lab and no one would call that a powerhouse. So, uh, but, um, you know, David Reich ha has been a master of analyzing uh, uh, genes and gene differences. And um, I guess he thinks about uh, evolution and uh, patterns of 
um, ancient peoples moving around and this and that. But he also looks at genes between black and white. And he wrote this New York Times op-ed and then ultimately a book, um, which raised a ton of stir uh, 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 amongst so many people because I think everyone recognizes he's a great scientist, but I don't know what his implications were. But he had this quote in there in the op-ed where he wrote, I'm worried that well-meaning people who deny the possibility of substantial biological differences among human populations are digging themselves into an indefensible position, one that will not survive the onslaught of science. I am also worried that whatever discoveries are made, and we truly have no idea yet what they will be, will be cited as scientific proof that racist prejudices and agendas have been correct all along. This is why it's important, even urgent, that we develop a candid and scientifically up-to-date way of discussing any such differences. What What is your response to that? Or, or how do you kind of think about someone like David Reich, who I think is probably a very good scientist? Yeah, I think he is a very good scientist. I mean, he um, I interviewed him when I was writing Superior, and it was uh, the interview was arranged before he wrote that New York Times piece. Um, so he'd agreed to the interview, and he didn't give anybody else an interview on that topic afterwards because, uh, like you say, it became so incendiary and it caused it was very controversial. My impression of him was that he is very thoughtful and his area of study is ancient DNA predominantly. So he's not looking at modern day populations so much as he's looking at, as he's comparing modern day populations to ancient populations and, you know, looking at the DNA of skeletons that have been dug up from, from throughout history. What he implies in that comment, which I think personally I found quite reckless and I think a lot of people found very reckless. He's saying outright, we don't have the evidence yet, but when we have the evidence, it will likely justify our prejudices. But how can we know that? <laughs> how do we know that whatever genetic evidence that you think may emerge between population, uh, you know, to highlight differences between populations, will tally with the prejudices or the stereotypes that we have in society? That implies that you already think that the inequalities or the differences or the the assumptions that you make about different racial groups you believe are biological how what there's no other way to read that surely i mean i can't see any other way to read that sentence he's not saying they will confound our prejudices he's not saying they will show our prejudices to not be rooted in biology he's saying that they will they will most likely reflect them and that is really problematic because this is a prominent scientist making that statement, which again, by his own admission, is not rooted in evidence. I mean, I'm not saying that population level dif difference doesn't exist. You know, I'm not saying that every human being is genetically identical to the next. But what we can know with, with absolute certainty is that number one, we are one of the most homogeneous species on the planet. We are more homogeneous genetically than any other primate. So chimpanzees show more genetic diversity than we do, number one. And number two, the population level differences between us at the genetic level are hugely, overwhelmingly outweighed by the individual differences between us. So, you know, to even consider that at the population level, you would see, you know, differences in psychology or temperament or intellectual level or anything like that, I just think is such a stretch and so not rooted in any of the evidence that we have right now from genetics that, that I, I just find it remarkable that anyone can make that kind of claim. It just runs counter to so much of what we know about human difference. And in fact, this is what many geneticists, other geneticists I interviewed said to me. You know, they said that they didn't agree with Reich. He certainly runs counter to prevalent thinking in fields like anthropology. What I worry is that although I do think that David Reich is well-meaning, and he's a very likable person when you meet him, he's quite softly spoken and thoughtful and careful in what he says, but I don't think he realizes perhaps the damage that speculative statements like that can have out there in the real world. And certainly I get emails and I see messages and posts, blog posts all the time in far-right groups and white supremacist groups citing David Reich. He strikes me, you write about some other scientists who say this too, who are like, who say things like, I'm, I'm blinded, I just follow the science, I don't think about the social pieces of it. And um, you have this great quote at the end of that chapter, I thought, where you said, as the devastating mistakes of the 19th and earliest 20th centuries proved, race research never goes well when society is racist. 
thought that was very poignant. You know, I, I was thinking about it in a way. It almost, uh, David Reich is probably a million times better scientist than I am. Don't, don't don't tell the NIH I said that. But in a way, it's it's so sloppy because when you use race as the group you're comparing, it's it's throwing together so many kind of different variables into into two groups you're comparing. And when it comes to like genetic analysis, there's so many data points. And like, so I study the microbiome a little bit and you get so much data that you could almost find differences in like any two groups you pick yeah. if you play around with it. Mm -hmm. And what that means, uh, you have to be really careful about. The other piece I, I that really struck me, and it, Again, I feel like I have to keep saying it. David Reich knows this better than me. But like looking at genetics are one thing, um, but the way that they actually function when we think about the control of your genes. So we know so much about epigenetics now. So if you smoke, if you're exposed to pollution, um, anything you're exposed to uh, can lead to, um, you know, like methylations or essentially control which genes turn on and turn off. So just knowing what the genes are can be not so meaningful, probably plays less of an important role in all the different things you're exposed to. So that's one thing. Then I think about the microbiome, the bacteria in your gut, which is gaining so much excitement. And we know now microbiome changes a lot based on diet, obesity, environmental things. It seems to be actually less connected to the genes and it likely also plays a role in which genes get activated. So like, while I know that someone like David Reich knows all this, it does worry me that people lay these things out. And like you said, extreme right groups take it as gospel, but it, it may or may not have any meaning at all in how those genes function. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, there are a number of factors here. One of them is that we do live in a very genetically deterministic age. I mean, we, we turn to genes and genomes as a kind of answer to everything that we can explain everything about human nature and human biology. If we just understand our genes enough and obviously as you explained that's not the case we can't there's a limit there and there are so many other factors involved in development and gene regulation and and the how our bodies grow and the way in which disease works that are nothing to do with genetics but I think also it's very easy and I'm saying this as a journalist I think it's very easy for scientists who are focused on one particular topic in great detail to see see the whole world through the lens of that topic that one subject and I see this very often I see psychologists do it I see neuroscientists do it I see geneticists do it that they think that whatever they're studying is possibly a way of explaining everything <laughs> I'm sure microbiome researchers do this as well, that they think they know much of disease just by studying the gut. And it's very easy to do because you're immersed in that world all the time and you see the power of it and the importance of it and you don't see anything else. I think that's part of the problem is that science these days is not the job of a generalist. It's the job of a super specialist. And the problem that creates is that you need that kind of systems level holistic thinking, not just about the science and and all the different disciplines uh, within biology, but also the environmental factors, historical factors, social factors, everything to understand things in a holistic way. And nobody's, you know, who can be trained in that? That's just impossible. Um, and that's why I think that's part of the reason I think that you get the problems that you do. That is just so well said. So for years, I've been studying this one gene, the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which happens to be a gene that responds to like dioxin and other toxins, but it responds to pollution, to diet, to products of our microbiome. And um, it's, it's what I would call a really promiscuous gene. You know, it binds to so many different things. And I, I do exactly what you said. I, you can read anything and be like, oh, that must be the hydrocarbon receptor. And I can make hypotheses and test for anything I want, and I'm going to find some connection. <laughs> like, and so like, I think what you said is so right about it. Um, so much is the lens you come into it. Um, so that's really, really important. I, the other thing, I, COVID made it obvious to me in this world of Twitter and social, uh, and the internet and all of that, it's amazing how poorly so many people look at data and, th and think about what it shows and spread that around. So it's like a particularly dangerous dangerous time to put something out there without context because it's amazing how 
people develop these ideas and you're like, that's not what that shows. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I abandoned social media <laughs> last year and the year before, so I'm no longer on Facebook or on Twitter. And that was partly because of abuse that I was getting. But actually, it was also because, like you say, I just don't th see these platforms as the best places to have meaningful long debates around scientific topics science by its nature is uncertain it's nuanced it involves lots of different perspectives and lots of lots of data and evidence and you can't really have a debate like that you know in a few characters on social media and also I mean, I was finding, I don't, I don't know if this is the case for everybody, but kind of people who are most active on social media tend to kind of have an axe to grind. You know, they're not there for meaningful interaction. They're there to, to push their own point of view. And so it's very difficult to shift perspectives or change people's minds or have a productive dialogue in that, that kind of environment. That's not to say that they're useless. I do think the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and Black and STEM have been so helpfully supported by social media action and you know especially I think those who are least powerful in society have social media as a kind of democratic way of getting involved in debates but I for one you know I I have a bit of power I have a bit of leverage and I try to use that in different ways now because I just don't see social media necessarily as the best way for me to use my time. Right. I totally agree with that. Um, now, I just if we can spend the last few minutes just talking about two specific genes of interest. So when I think about genetics, there's like things like genes for hypertension or uh, diabetes. And I think for the most part, it's usually not. It's some interplay between a bunch of different genes and social stuff and diet and all that kind of thing. And to me, those are hard to understand and, and, and difficult to talk about. And then there are these genes that are autosomal recessive, where like if you have two copies of it, you have the disease. I bet you when most doctors in your family or my own, I got everyone in my family to read the book too, and <laughs> they all, but we all had this debate about this. When docs or healthcare providers read this, they probably immediately think of sickle cell. Yeah. And you do write about it, um, but I just wanted to spend a couple minutes talking about that. So as probably most people know the sickle cell gene or being heterozygous for it gives some protection against malaria. And so it was selected for in populations that are exposed to malaria. But if you're homozygous for that gene, you develop sickle cell disease, which uh, can be a tough disease. And in the U.S., I think it's fair to say it's, pro it's probably thought of as, you know, mostly found in African-American patients. So can you just say a few words about how you talk about that about sickle cell? Well, uh, the reasons that in countries like the US and in the UK for that matter, that, uh, sickle cell is seen as a black condition is because of the demographics of these places. So if the majority or a large number of black Americans are, are of or have West African heritage and the majority or a large number of white Americans have Western European heritage in which malaria is not common, then certainly the prevalence of this gene is going to be higher among black Americans. But when you, and so it's going to look as, like a black white situation. But if you look globally, sickle cell trait is not just found in areas of the world where people have black skin, it's also found in areas of the world where people have white skin or pale skin. Because, like you say, it's an adaptation that responds to malaria. You know, it confers protection against malaria. So it's not a black-white condition globally. It's only because of the demographics of the US that it looks like a black-white condition. Now, the question is, is it useful then in the US to treat or to screen patients on the basis of skin color, given that you do see a much higher prevalence among black Americans? Well, like I said, you do also see sickle cell in white people with white skin, including in the US. And in fact, a number of years ago, there were there was an attempt made to only screen in certain US states black babies. But when they looked at the data, they found that the order of magnitude by which they saw the sickle cell trait was about the same in black babies and white babies. Number one, because white babies demographically outnumbered black babies. So, you know, the even though it's it's less common, you will see it more often because there are more of them. But also because it does exist in, in white babies too. And so those states now screen all babies irrespective of color. So I think when we when we think about 
race and the way that we're using it. We have to understand all this history, all this social background, and pick apart the reasons why we're using it the way that we do. There, there may be, you, you know, it may be salient in certain situations, but very often it's being used as a proxy for something else. So in this case, skin color is used being used as a proxy for someone who has heritage in a region in which malaria is common. But then why don't you just use that that as a variable? Do you have heritage in a in a region where malaria is common? Just ask people that. You don't need to know their skin color. Right. It, it strikes me as ironic in our country that, you know, the reason a high percentage of African Americans have this geographic background is because they were brought over during the slave trade. So mm. it's back into that vicious loop that we put ourselves in. But yeah, I think that's the key. Like it's a surrogate for geography. Yeah. In this case, and in other cases, it will be a surrogate for something else. But for six right. people, yeah, it's geography. Right. And then I wanted to bring up this one other gene. So I'm a transplant surgeon and I do, uh, one of the things I do is kidney transplant. And the other thing I do is I take kidneys out of people that want to donate to a family member, a friend, or, you know, just into the pool of people that need kidneys. Mm -hmm. um, but he knows that African-Americans have more renal failure than uh, white Americans. And on top of that, have less access to transplant. So these are things that we know. The biggest causes of the renal failure are things like hypertension, diabetes, some specific kidney diseases. There was this gene discovered, which uh, apoloprotein 1, I'll call it APOL1, which is a very in some ways similar to the sickle cell story in patients who um, have a background from uh, Saharan Africa uh, who were exposed to a trypanosome or a parasite that caused African sleeping sickness if patients were heterozygous to APOL1, uh, to these alleles of APOL1, they had protection. But patients who are homozygous actually have a, a higher risk of renal failure. It's not quite at the level of sickle cell, where if you have the two genes, you have sickle cell, but it increases your risk of kidney failure probably, I don't know, six to 10 times, something like that. It's found in the African-American population in the U.S. It's estimated that 13% of African-Americans are homozygous for APOL1, whereas very few, I guess I'll, I'll say white Americans are. We don't, of course, screen African-Americans for this gene because it doesn't immediately causes the disease, it increases the risk. But when I evaluate donors who want to donate, um, particularly if they're donating to a family member who's African-American who has kidney failure, you know, there's a lot of discussion about whether we should then screen them for this gene. Because when we evaluate a donor, we're really trying to assess, you know, you don't need to do this. What is your risk going to be of kidney failure after you donate. And we don't know all the answers, but like we wouldn't let a diabetic donate. Of course, it's not a black gene. It's a geography gene. What do you think about that? Should Is it reasonable to screen those patients? Um, is it kind of the same discussion we should talk more about origin and geography? Well, again, it's a situation that doesn't need to be racialized, does it? I mean, the fact that it's been described as being more common in African-Americans, let's break that down and ask, why is the phrase African-American even being used? It's it's very common in people um, from this region who have heritage in this region of the world. So why would the phrase black or African-American even be necessary in that context? And that, again, comes down to the way that we use the categories that we do. Why, you know, why do we use the categories that we do? Where do we draw the boundaries? Um, and I would say wherever we're going to use any kind of category, just use the one that you need. Don't use ones that you don't. You don't need to use African-American. You do need to use sub-Saharan African perhaps, or, you know, some, some other geographical boundary. Um, and that's fine. You know, I, that, that's absolutely fine. And if you need to, if it is valuable and important and life-saving to screen for a gene, then of course that should be done. But I think what I can't help feeling is that sometimes, and I wrote about this towards the end of Inferior, especially in, with reflection on Duana Full Wiley's work about what scientists are doing when they're using race as a variable, is that this often rests on a hope that if we just keep looking and treating people as though race matters, then eventually its biological salience will make itself known. You know, that somehow it will, it will appear for us in front of our eyes with all the data that we have. But that doesn't make any sense. How could you expect that to happen? It just, you know, it's, it's a 
weird roundabout way of doing science is you start with an imaginary category and then you keep looking and keep looking until you can prove that that imaginary category is real. So again, whether it is sickle cell or whether it is this or, or you know, there are very few conditions like this, you, you know, as a doctor, there are very few conditions that are affected by genes that are affected by your geographical ancestry. But the fact that we use racial categories when referring to them just goes again to show how much we feel that eventually we will find some meaning in those racial categories. Yeah, I like that comment that we make up these categories and then look for something. I was thinking, you know, so so when we look at organs or we do a transplant, we can't, they look all the same. They're, we're kind of all the same on the inside. We score donor kidneys based on various factors to assess like their quality and they get a score. And one of the things in our scoring system is you know, if the donor was was black and that makes the kidney get a worse score, which means it's more likely to be thrown out or, you know, potentially changes who it goes to. It's probably, this is being studied right now in a big study, but most likely the thing that makes those kidneys, you know, perform less long is either the presence of APOL1 or some other surrogate marker that we don't know. I, hopefully at some point we'll be able to take that out of the equation you know, when we get to the point where everyone, all of them, the donors will quickly be tested for APOL1, right? So the genetic, you know, yeah. it's kind of a strange thing, right? It's, <laughs> yeah. as I read the book and think about it, it's it's kind of horrifying, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. But I do think, I mean, I often think of medicine as a bit like engineering. So like I said, I studied engineering and there are loads of different ways to build a bridge. The most important thing is not necessarily that you know how those ways work, but that the bridge stays up. And medicine is a bit like that. There are lots of different ways to treat a patient. I mean, sometimes just with a sugar pill. And you don't always know how that process is working in the patient or how they get there. But if they get better, then it doesn't really matter. Um, and so I think there, there are sometimes many areas of medicine in which we don't fully understand why a patient is helped by a certain particular treatment or a certain way of looking at their condition. But it doesn't really matter as long as they get better. <laughs> and in that, pro, in that kind of slightly myst mystified area that's I think where racial myths seep in um, because we don't have the f a full understanding yet of how human difference plays out or why you know for, for example just a couple of years ago there was a big study in the UK that showed that half the people taking statins are getting no benefit from them or very little benefit and that's true of many drugs. You know, all drugs don't work in all people. We know that. Not for racial reasons or gender reasons or any other reasons, but just because we're all different and some drugs work in some people and not in others. For example, paracetamol has no effect on me, but it works on a lot of other people. And that kind of fudgy area in which everybody is different and we don't really know how they're different is where I think this kind of idea of group difference seeps in. I think I could talk to you all day. Um, I found this wonderful... Um, I hope everyone out there reads your book and we all have more conversations like this. Um, it's truly a beautiful book. And I actually love how immersive it is, how you're in there. And I think that's such a great way to write. Can I just end by asking you, with the way the world has been going all over and with all the, I guess you say, abuse you've got on social media, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about all of this? It was an open-ended question, but... I feel optimistic. And the reason why is that I know the world can feel very bleak at the moment, but most of the abuse that I get, and I don't get very much, but almost all of it is concentrated among crazy white supremacists. <laughs> you know, it is not everyday people. And every single day when I'm doing things like this or when I'm giving talks at universities, I meet countless people who are working so hard, thoughtfully and carefully to do their work better, to do science better, to think about issues like race and gender in a wiser, more careful and nuanced way, who are actively changing how the process works. Um, I work with a number of scientific institutions and I can see the kind of willingness and passion among them to improve the way that they present evidence, uh, to provide better historical context around ideas, to change the way they teach science. And those people vastly outnumber, you know, the white supremacists who are active on Twitter or, or on other platforms. So however, you know, disturbing, for example, the storming of the Capitol 
last month was, and it was devastating and terrifying to think how powerful certain far-right groups have become and certain ideologies still remain. And I do think we need to be vigilant about that and we need to always look at ourselves and look at society and ask how have these things been allowed to happen. The number of people who want to do good in the world, I just think outnumbers them so much. Yeah, that's great. I think you're right. I think you can get this distorted view and social media has given voice to that. But um, I think you're right there. Most of us are, are trying to be good. <laughs> and uh, I think we have more discussions and I have a million more questions I was going to ask you, but um, maybe I'll get you on again sometime in the future. But that was just wonderful. And uh, I hope you didn't regret coming on. Oh, not at all. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Angela. Take care of yourself. And uh, again, thank you. Thank you. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Mesrich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Wisc Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. <laughs>